0: So, good evening, and um, thank you for your practice. This evening I want to explore further some themes related to metta, but particularly in relationship to forgiveness. Looking at the connection of... uh, not to practice and forgiveness um, in connection with what will be opening to tomorrow, which is metta for the so-called difficult person. Actually, difficult person is not an accurate translation. It's kind of a, I don't know, a softening. In the original language, the term is the enemy. (laughs) But again, in relation to what Gulu Gulu was saying, my understanding with talking with uh, people who are knowledgeable about um, the meaning of the enemy in the context, let's say, of uh, village life in what's now India, is that there was generally someone in one's community who might be called the enemy, but it was kind of a friendly enemy, like one's nemesis or something like that. Uh, you know, the way that you have, maybe have someone at work who just you know is going to counter all your good intentions. Anyone have someone like that? Okay a candidate for the difficult person. <laughs> I look forward to talking, Gulu, with you, whether that, that resonates with what, with you now. And so I'll be looking at forgiveness, but first looking at some of the themes that we've been exploring uh, in the talks, particularly looking further at the theme of purification and what Gulu was opening up to in terms of, we were looking at, in terms of how metta can really uh, touch our depths, and then i'll then I'll focus uh, more um, <clears throat> more closely on forgiveness, so I want to invite you again, as uh, we've mentioned a few times to set your intention to be with the talk as um, as practice and I'll do the same. When I I was first giving more Dharma talks, my my main mentor at the time, John Travis, he would give me guidance for giving talks. He would say, you know, do your preparation and all that and then um, ground in your body and in your heart and let your thoughts self-organize Okay, so that's my that's my practice. Okay. Self-organizing with notes. Okay. So, so first a reminder that our meta practice is a training. And it's really helpful to keep on remembering that. That we're we're training in, in different capacities. One way of talking about it that I like a lot is that we're training to lead with our kind hearts, to lead in our own experience, in our interactions and so forth. And again, uh, we can sometimes do that uh, with the metta practice. Sometimes we can do it by asking a question. Where's my heart at right now? A great daily life practice. Where's my heart at right now? Am I present? Am I present to my heart? Or Julia Butterfly Hill, am I meeting this moment with love? Right? We can ask that question. And I, I love the asking of questions as an aid to practice. Just it can really be enlivening. It doesn't, uh, of course, mean, or maybe I shouldn't say, of course, it doesn't mean that if the answer is, I am not meeting this moment with love, that we get down on ourselves, right? But it's more like an invitation. Just like the meta phrases are invitations to the heart. They're not demands. And that's, that's important. So a few further words about uh, what we're calling uh, purification, we could call it also transformation, where we're recognizing that, uh, I think as Kyra Jewell said, netta calls forth its opposite at times. And definitely, I think I may have said this a few nights ago, but netta retreats are generally more intense in terms of the range of emotions and what comes up than mindfulness retreats, you know, having, having done both for a lot of years. And the dreams are more volatile. How many have had somewhat volatile dreams? Oh, good sign! Very good, <laughs> very good. And so uh, things can come up, and you know that which um, really maybe is in the way of metta can come up in various ways. You know, and we, and so we talked about uh, various ways that. Um, Meta practice can be hard some of the challenges of meta practice, and you know I talked some about that Kyra Jewel talked about it, you know distraction um I love what we sometimes call meta models, where you've been repeating we've been repeating the phrases so many times that sometimes they come out in really strange forms. How many have noticed something like that? yeah. You know, I I have a few that I've written down that from my own uh, experience, instead of may I be happy and uh, contented, may I be happy and cemented. (laughs) May I be free and live with ease. Instead of that, may I be free and live with lice. (laughs) Instead of may I be safe and free from harm, may I be safe and free from home. Yipes! And I remember uh, Sally Armstrong once said she had had uh, just in, in a real meta model. She said, "May I be free from something?" <laughs> <laughs> so we we can be distracted. We can you know work with sleepiness. We've talked some about this. Uh, you know, wanting, you know, wanting something that we don't have, uh, aversion to our own practice, to other people, the person who happens to be breathing just a little more loudly than really should be happening. <laughs> and, yeah, um, the tone of voice is appropriate. And, um, you know, there's restlessness. Cairo uh, Jewel also talked about doubt and, and grief, or how the approach the approach to metta can feel like, as we've said a few times, reading from a phone book, dry or not, not so connected with the heart. <clears throat> and there's also a way that, you know, the metta, even when that's happening, is inclining, we're inclining with the practice towards metta, we're inviting it, you know, in, in a way, um, we could say that our, as we engage in metta-practice and, and touch it, our own depths are inviting us. Our own depths of heart are inviting us. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday is tomorrow, and I'll be, I'll be quoting from a few times, he said, there is within human nature an amazing potential for goodness. We're inclining towards that and, and feeling it and, and noticing it some. And we notice what gets in the way. I don't know if we've named it so far, but in some of the teachings about metta, it's said that there's a near enemy and a far enemy. You know, Sometimes we call it like the near opposite and the far opposite. The near opposite, or the near enemy, near opposite, I think, is is Larry Yang's phrase, and he taught this meta retreat in January for many years as you know, um, colleague, many years, and uh, the near opposite is is when the meta, we have some elements of meta, but there's also some, what, some um, something that's not purely meta, something that is. close, but uh, distorted in some way. And so it's a really beautiful, subtle teaching because the teaching is that all of the Brahma-vihara, compassion and joy and equanimity also have near enemies. Guru talked about indifference is traditionally the near enemy of equanimity. It can have some elements of equanimity, but it's not the full thing. It's not mature. And for loving-kindness, it's a kind of... uh, attached or compulsive metta or love. You know, kind of po- could be possessive, grasping in some way. And of course, that comes with the territory, right? So it's it's natural. And the, um, the far enemy is, is more obvious. It's the opposite. So the far enemy of metta is hatred. That's easier to see. You know, and it's interesting for compassion the near enemy is um, pity. So there can be some warmth and some compassion, but there's some sense maybe of superiority or distance. You know, I, I think of um, a friend who um, spends most of his time in a wheelchair. He was at the grocery store. Someone came up to him and I think manifested the near enemy of compassion and said, you know... I admire you so much, living with the wheelchair, you know. If it was me, I would kill myself. (laughs) Uh Not quite the genuine thing, right? (laughs) Right, But but some elements there, right? So, interesting. So, in the purification practice, we work sometimes with some of the states that we've mentioned Things can come up that, in a way, uh, maybe block our heart from block our hearts from manifesting metta, you know. Or they can be, you know, aspects of our own uh, wounds, or our own unresolved pain, or um, could be our grief, as Kyra Jewel was exploring. It could be aspects of anger, or self-judgment, judgment of others. Things come up, you know, things come up in the metta. And um, how to work with these um, really difficult states that come up, such as such as the one that I mentioned could be fear. Fear can come, come up, anxiety. Metta can bring these up. And um, I like the Tibetan slogan. I think it's from the Lojong teachings. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Put that on your refrigerator. (laughs) Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. It's a beautiful vision, not easy, right? And so I want to suggest uh, Actually, I found myself talking earlier in, in the one-on-ones and talking about five ways I think of working with fear, and I thought I thought they were they were good, and I thought I'd I'd pass them on this evening, and, I, and along the way I added two others, so so seven seven ways generally of working with difficult states, um, and I, I won't go into so much detail, but just name them, and um, I think. The first one is quite important. When we're having challenging states come through, it's really important, almost right away, to clarify the level of intensity and whether it's workable or not. Um, guidance not always given in mindfulness retreats. You know, we can, I, I, w- I went through a several year trauma training and heard a lot of stories of people who are having basically traumatic activation in retreats and being told, just stay with it. Not skillful. That happened a while ago. People have been more savvy in the last maybe five years, but before that, not always so much. And I heard that I've heard those stories, right? And that's not that's that's basically re-traumatizing and not skillful. And so we want to clarify what's the level of intensity? Is it workable? I like to use a scale of one to ten kind of like the Olympic divers, degree of difficulty, right? And when something's coming up that has, that's challenging, try to get a sense. Is it in the workable range, maybe a five or a six, maybe seven? Or is it a nine or a ten? Because there are different responses depending on the level of intensity. If it's a nine or a ten, we actually don't really want to stay with it. Not a good idea. Sort of pull out of it as best you can. That could be done in different ways. Um, you know, it depends if we're, you know, here or at home or whatever. So we could, if we're, if we're meditating, we can um, open the eyes, look around, find something pleasant, find something pleasing that actually tra- changes the brain, um, the part of the brain that's working and it can it can kind of take one out of the of the um higher activation um and so um could be you know we might later if we're here we could uh take a walk if we're at home you know talk with a friend the thing different things that help us come back to balance sometimes do a a vigorous activity some meditations could be helpful um, you know, the Kyra Jewel mentioned that uh, metta sometimes can be a really good antidote when there's a lot of fear. I've sometimes, I've sometimes done that. You know, I remember, I don't know if I'll tell the story, but maybe I will. Anyway, um, I was doing a retreat in Colorado at uh, Tara Mandala, and I was camping, and they gave me a camping place. All right, they gave me a choice, and I cho- I wanted to be a little away from things, and they they told me, this is a nice place. Uh, you know, um, we actually caught a bear here a week ago, but we, we took it away. So, so, so I said, looks nice. And of course, you know, 9.30, everything finishes. I go back to my campsite, lie down, and every sound of a twig... <laughs> becomes the bear is coming, <laughs> right? And uh, even though they told me they t- took it 50 miles away, but the mind of fear uh, knows that 50 miles is nothing for a bear. <laughs> anyway, um, and so eventually I remembered, oh, metta. And I, uh, I did meta for the next three hours. A little bit for the bear, mostly not, <laughs> you know. And uh, it—it's something faded, and I actually stayed there, and I didn't think about the bear. The rest of the retreat was a weak retreat. So, sometimes metta for some kinds of of uh, challenges can be helpful, or some of you know, compassion and so forth. If it's in the workable range, mindfulness can be really, really skillful with the difficult states to to work with them be present to them, explore them. I'll mention in a, little, in, in a moment how to work with that briefly with uh, anger and with uh, judgmental mind. Um, so the first I'm calling is find the level of intensity. If it's a high level of intensity, have a repertoire of a few things you can do. Thirdly, if it's workable, mindfulness can be really, really valuable to explore it and be with it. What actually happens is the It helps the process move on. Sometimes in the mindfulness, we go into deeper layers, what's beneath it. A lot of the difficult states are kind of being, um, they're coming out of some unacknowledged or unprocessed pain or wound that we can sometimes touch. Anger is like that a lot, you you know, maybe you've experienced that, but sometimes when we're with anger and stay with it, it can turn into sadness or grief. It can be beneath the anger, and then sometimes it—I've experienced—it uh, turns can turn into love. It's quite interesting. I'll say a little bit more about that. So, mindfulness as a, a, a third, a fourth is to bring in some self-compassion. You know, I'm going through a hard time. Could be that three-part self-compassion practice. You know, to acknowledge this is hard. Number two, uh, recognize it as a common human experience. And third, just offer some kind words. That can be a two-minute practice where we can do the more extended compassion practice. Um, Body practices like the vagus nerve practice that Kyra Jewell gave us or yoga or qigong can sometimes be really balancing, grounding, regulating of the body can be quite helpful. I'm sure a lot of you do that. How many of you do that sometimes with difficult states? That's that's very, very helpful. Um, A sixth is to deliberately bring in joy, beauty. Something that really is nourishing. You know, to, you know, hear. if 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 you're in a difficult spell, be with the trees. Be with the beauty outside, you know. I mentioned to a few of you a practice that actually came out of uh, Kaira It came out of when we did the Brahma Vihara retreat together last year. I I think, I'm sure I told you this, but we were, you know, it was a Zoom retreat. And uh, we were doing all four of the Brahma Vihara over seven days. And for Mudita, I just started walking, you know, taking my walks around my neighborhood. I live in... uh, Berkeley, kind of in a residential neighborhood, and I would just walk around, and I would offer mudita to the trees, and the f- flowers, and the bushes. And it—they're not as complicated as our difficult people. And there was something that was just incredibly uh, joyful. I would just, oh, may you continue to blossom, oh, may you may you keep growing well, and you know. Something like that, and it was something you know. You can try it out here, you know, and see if it works for you. None of these work for everyone, but it's something I still do it. It was a year ago, almost a year ago, we did that retreat. I still do it when I take walks, and you know, bring in people also, and you know, doggies and so forth. And uh, but you can do at home. You know, it could be music or dancing or. Art, something like that, that really brings joy and and that's nourishing, you know, in in a difficult time. And of course, that's been, you know, that's that's been used by many practitioners over over many many years. Um, And let's see. And then the the seventh, I won't go into so much depth on, but this is really bringing a deeper inquiry. To some of the patterns, kind of the deeper patterns or the chronic patterns that might be connected with my fear or my anger or my being judgmental. You know, there might be, for example, a limiting belief that I've had maybe since childhood that I've got either from family or from society I'm not okay or I don't really belong or something like that. And that can be. That can be linked uh, almost like generating some of the more regular expressions of judgmental mind. And they can be worked with and transformed. That's, that's more than I can talk about right here. But it's um, in, in the long run, we want to get at some of those uh, deeper things we carry with us a lot, you know, a lot for a long time, from, often from childhood. How many of you are actually almost like recognizing some of that when it appears for you? Yeah, because it's that's great. <clears throat> so, just a few words about anger, and then a few more words about working with a judgmental mind. Again, mindfulness can be really, really helpful with something like anger. And as I was uh, mentioning, you know, um, anger sometimes is seen just negatively. And I think sometimes we get that in the translations from the Buddhist texts. And I, I think some of the translations are, are questionable. Because you know, I think in some of the, uh, in the Buddhist context, sometimes what's translated as anger is entirely negative. And in, in, con, in Western context, the way we use the language here, anger can also have positive dimensions. You know, it can be uh, anger at injustice, for example, right? Uh, And, you know, in uh, Western traditions, you know, you you have basically, um, it can be very confusing because anger is often criticized, but then we have, you know, um, God gets angry, the Jewish prophets get angry, Jesus gets angry, right? So... And then anger is one of the seven deadly sins. So what's going on? You know, basically, uh, one person who wrote a book on anger said, it's the most confusing emotion in, in Western culture. But I, but I, in my experience, I, ha- I had one retreat where I was angry for about seven days in a row, about 16 hours a day. And I was actually uh, angry at the retreat teachers. Because I, I I'll tell you a story. Because it's, it's it might be helpful. I was coming from having lived, um, lived in the kind of in basically in Kentucky and Ohio for like what was it? Maybe I think seven years. You know, I grew up on the East Coast, so it it was it was different for me. And, uh, but I was really interested in making, making the practice. I was a practitioner at that point, and I was really interested in making the practice real in daily life. That was really a very, very strong interest. You know, like I had done a fair number of retreats up till then, but that was really strong, still is a very strong interest. And I went to the retreat, and I felt like they were um, treating us as if we were full time monastics and not really, not so much referring to daily life. I think it's changed since then. And I got angry. I mean, I had done these retreats before, but for whatever reason I got angry and I just stayed angry for seven days, 16 hours a day. And it kind of merged with other anger. And, um, but I was in the workable range and it was really, really fascinating. I was able to be present with the anger, watch it, explore what's it like in the body, stay with it. Sometimes it's like fire, some, you know, different flavors. And I was able to see, you know, see, you know, uh, it change. Um, Sometimes it would change into sadness. Oh, I think I have some insights about the importance of daily life practice. No one's listening to me. Uh (laughs) Right? Or something like that. Or and I would stay with the sadness sometimes, and sometimes the sadness would go into love. Oh, I really care about this community. I really, you know, and so forth. So, you can you can see that, and um, you know, it's um, actually I think that I think that um, when we, I think the anger at injustice, for example when we go more deeply into it, it has love as its basis. And it's important to get in touch with that, you know. So, actually, um, Dr. King um, thought, he, he said, the supreme task is to organize and unite people so that their anger becomes a transforming force. Right, So that the um, anger isn't destructive, but... Can be can be touched in certain ways. <clears throat> this is from the 19th century from Georson, who is a, a writer. She said, Humanity is outraged in me and with me. We must not dissimulate nor try to forget this indignation, which is one of the most passionate forms of love. But we have to know that ourselves, not intellectual. So that's one of the, when we work with the anger, we can sometimes touch that. It's, for me in that retreat, I didn't know that before that retreat. It was really amazing to be with anger in that way. And same thing with the judgmental mind. I had a, I had a, a two-month retreat, which came after about eight or nine years of being really busy. It was a two-month retreat here. And I was... Um, <clears throat> I was finding myself really being judgmental towards myself and others a lot, and you know I was judgmental towards myself for I had I had been teaching in a graduate school, really bit and really busy. I'd done a lot of you know quote unquote good things. I had done a lot of writing, and um, you know I had engaged in a lot of training programs combining spirituality and social change, social justice work and good work, but I I was judgmental of myself. I haven't left enough time for my own practice and I've wasted time. You know, the judgmental mind can be harsh, right? It can be really harsh. You know, I wasn't recognizing, you know, good things. I was just really down on myself. Harsh, you know, wasted your time. I would compare myself to people who I thought had done it right. Anyone know that one? <laughs> right. Compared myself to people who I thought, it, of course, I didn't know the reality of their lives, but I projected them as having done it right, which I'm sure was really inaccurate. Right. But but that would, that would happen. And uh, I started just working and noticing, being mindful of the judgments. And it it kind of opened up and it was... I'd, I did a practice which uh, was given to me by by John Travis, which was a beautiful practice. When I would notice the spinning of the judgments, he would invite me, go down and bring your attention into your heart and just keep your attention there. Because basically it can be a way to see what's beneath the uh, judgment, some kind of pain. Oh, oh, I really love this meditation. I'd like to do it more. That's genuine. Right, that's not judgmental. And I could touch that, right? And so I did this practice maybe 20 times a day where I would go into, I just bring the attention down to my heart. It took some time for it to work, but it's basically using the body as an access route to see what's beneath the surface, you know? And it could be, uh, you know, I remember one time when I it really was working it was, you know, we did the two month retreat in like February and March, which um, used to be, in California, it used to rain in February and March. And this February and March, it will surely rain. Yep, right? How many think it will rain? Let's have hands for raining. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, one, one day I was outside for lunch, you know, and I was near the end of the food line before COVID. So we were all in one line and it was moving really, really slowly. And I was getting irritable and judgmental. They should have set up, up differently. I'm sure it's tacos with 10 condiments and everyone's going through really, really slowly. That was actually correct. (laughs) 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 They should do it differently. (laughs) You know, and, um, a little bit before I got in the dining hall, still online, I remember that this practice of going into my heart, I did it and said, oh, I'm impatient. Oh, let me feel the impatience. Oh, I felt it. Felt it for 10 seconds, all the judgments dissipated. Right? That, that was a simple example. Some kind of underlying pain was driving the judgment. In this case, impatience, not not huge, but still something unpleasant, right? So if we can touch that, sometimes the judgment can be released, right? And uh, so that can happen, again, we can be judgmental sometimes for, you know, good reasons. We can be judgmental of uh, injustice, we can be judgmental, my co-worker doesn't keep the agreement, there's something important there, but what I found is that the judgmental mind is a mixture at times of something important, like, okay... Important to talk to my coworker, okay? Note the injustice and so forth gets mixed up with reactivity. And the work can be to separate out the insight from the reactivity. That's the, kind of the longer term work with that. <clears throat> I'll just say a few words about the, um, or maybe I'll back up one sec. That's just to say that for a lot of those difficult states that come up, they can carry some insights or some gifts. And our practice is to learn how to work with them and transform them so that we keep the insight or the gift and work through the reactivity. And that's the kind of the formula, you know, something like I'm judgmental of my coworker for not keeping the agreement. If I stay in judgmental mind and talk to my coworker, it's not gonna go well. You know, If I have power, I can get my way, but that's still not going well, right? But if we're equals, it's, it's gonna lead to, to friction and lack of cohesiveness. And so if I do the inner work and preserve, okay, it's important to me that we keep agreements. And I work through the reactivity about it, then I can bring it, bring it up in a skillful way, in a way which is the person's no longer my enemy, but my, you know, my co-worker we're trying to reach resolution. <clears throat> and just to say a little bit, I had, had a lot here I could have said, but for reasons of time, I'll just be brief. That um, <clears throat> Gula was talking about the way that metta really touches our depths that it, um, it can take us into the depths of our being. You know, the, the Buddha talks about this mind and heart are radiant, but they get co- the heart and mind get covered over. He said the, the, the heart and mind is brightly shining the shining is connected with metta. The radiant quality of the mind and heart is connected with metta. It gets covered over. And yet it can be when we work through some of what gets in the way, the the shining comes through, the brightness comes through. And so in the Thai forest tradition, the teachers are continually like uh, Achan, Man, who's kind of the founder of the Thai forest tradition, Achan just means teacher in in Thai. He said, um, practitioners, this mind and heart are originally radiant and clear, but covered over. The mind and heart are more radiant than anything else can be. The clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. And so I want to talk about forgiveness, really, for the rest of the talk in the context of uh, meta for the difficult person, because forgiveness is one of the tools we can work with in being with people who are difficult for us. And we'll, we'll work with the practice uh, tomorrow morning. And then in the afternoon, we'll have a session devoted to forgiveness as a practice. So I'll just introduce it now and... Um, we'll work in the morning with difficult person, in the afternoon with uh, forgiveness practice. So just a few things about um, uh, what forgiveness practice is and what it isn't. And, and just to say that the, the goal of forgiveness practice is really to uh, bring us towards seeing the people who are difficult, people who are we think are our opponents and moving in the direction. All of metta practice is a moving in the direction. It's not demanding that we get totally there. And with a difficult person, it's like a, an aspiration. So Gulu was talking about the opponent as the beloved, right? That's, that's a high bar, right? It's a lot. But, but metta towards all beings, not just, not just some not easy right but that is the aspiration again it's i think it's linked with recognizing that all beings have you know this buddha nature this radiant being and it gets covered over and if we see beings if we know in our own selves how our own radiance gets covered over we can more readily see you know i guess what you were talking about christ in his distressing disguise right or the radiant being really, really covered over. If we know that in ourselves, we can more readily see in others that the whatever, the unskillful words, actions and so forth are not the deepest nature of this being. Not easy to see with some, right? But that's that's where it's pointing to. So forgiveness is one way that we can, can work with um, you know, the different emotions, the anger, the being judgmental, the um, sadness and whatever, in relation in relationship to others. So I think of forgiveness as an honorary member of the Brahma vihara. If we had a contemporary vote, I would vote for it to be fifth Brahma Vihara. Okay. Maybe we'll have a vote at the end of the retreat. And, it, and we'll send the results of the, ro- re- of the vote to whoever is in charge. Okay. So forgiveness is particularly useful with, with difficult states, you know, such as the ones I, I've mentioned. It um, can be forgiveness for, to another, forgiveness to, um, for oneself. You know, in the practice that we'll do tomorrow, we'll work with a, a version of forgiveness that Larry Yang developed, which I like a lot, which is, is, is kind of radical. It go, it's really forgiveness of the way things are. Whoa, I'll come back to that, you know, maybe I'll come back to that tomorrow. The psychologist uh, Roberto Asagioli says, without forgiveness, life is governed by an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation. This is from President John Kennedy. Forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. So that's not exactly the same flavor. Anyway, I'll I'll read one more like that. This is from Oscar Wilde. Always forgive your enemies, nothing annoys them so much. (laughs) Okay, so that's, that's just for a little humor. Okay, so um, forgiveness practice can work very much like meta practice. We can repeat phrases, you know, if you have hurt me in any way in word, thought, or de- deed, consciously or unconsciously, um, you know, I, uh, I want to forgive you, something like that. We'll, uh, we have the phrases in, in our in our packet. So when again, we go into a difficult situation and we lead with the heart. We ha- again, it's an intention practice. Uh, Dr. King said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. There really are two modes of forgiveness practice. One is more outer and one is more inner. In a lot of cultures, there the forgiveness is more with another person or with another being. We, um, and in a lot of cultures there are rituals which help one to work with something that's come between two people. And it's more interpersonal and, and out there, different, different approaches. Sometimes one has to, I know in, in Jewish tradition one has to go to the person um, whom one has harmed and actually um, seek forgiveness from that person, you know, and talk to that person. You know, I I had a really interesting experience um, probably about, I don't know, uh, over 20 years ago and I I was invited by a friend who is um, First Nations in uh, what's called uh, British Columbia. Uh, name some of you may know her. She's been she's been writing and speaking publicly a lot, Patricia Vickers. And uh Patricia's a friend and she invited me to go to a potlatch ceremony with uh her part of her family who, who are Heiltsuk First Nations in a place called Bella Bella, which is um, about fourteen hours travel north of uh north of uh, Victoria, which is near Vancouver, in, in British Columbia. We, we, t- we drove, we took a ferry, and it took about 14 hours to get to, it's an island we went to called Bella Bella. It's not so far from uh, what's called Haida Gwaii, Queen Charlotte Islands, which is where Patricia lives, lives now. And um, I met someone there named uh, Frank Brown. Frank was probably in his you know, 30s, and he had a pretty remarkable experience, which was an example of a kind of a, uh, a, 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 a group forgiveness practice. When he was 17 or 18, he was involved with some other kids his age, and they were you know, basically beating up other kids. And he was actually arrested and was about to be sent to the uh, Canadian penal system and his uh, aunt remembered that there was an old practice in the culture where it'd be possible to um, do what we would we would call restorative justice would be so it would be where he could be sent to live by himself on an island a small island near the main community live by himself for a number of months and be visited by the elders periodically And everyone agreed to do that. And he lived on that island, was visited by elders, just 18 at the time. And he actually, some of the time, I think he actually um, spent some time with the uh, traditional outrigger canoes that would go out on the ocean. And... He was then after, I think, nine or 10 months, welcomed back to the community in what's called a washing ceremony, where the community welcomes him back. And, you know, in a sense, everything is forgiven. It's a forgive, you know, end, end of the story, right? End of the, um, you know, end of the response to the, what what happened. And Frank, I think, had a profound transformation He's basically devoted his life to um, helping young people in trouble. And one of the main ways he does that, he takes them out on the ocean in the outrigger canoes. He's been doing that and, you know, and speaking. There was a film made on, on, his, on his work and life, right? So that would be an example of a, a group cultural practice be quite quite wonderful it's wonderful to meet him and to hear about that and you know actually in the potlatch which was you know about a 4 day gathering that would start at 9 p.m. and go to about 4 in the morning it wouldn't start there was no no sense of starting on any particular time people would just show up when they showed up but there were there were forgiveness practices in that um in that ceremony over the days, forgiveness for, particularly for um, um, sexual abuse. It was quite, quite powerful and intense. There were meetings between perpetrators and, and, and victims in ceremony. It was quite something. And I, I was a witness. I was you know one of about, there were probably three or 400 people there. I was one of about 20 non-native people and um, so, there are outer practices, and we we do that. We'll do the forgiveness as more as an inner practice, you know, which is the way that has been done more, you know, in in this tradition. I think it could be expanded, but it'll be more of an inner practice where we, you know, where we really um, work through phrases with inclining ourselves towards forgiveness, kind of like in the phrase I. I said, if I have hurt you in word, thought, or deed, may I be forgiven. And it's important just to say, you know, a few things that, um, you know, that, um, let's see, where this go? Oh, that, you know, that forgiveness is not, because um, it can be confusing. So, um, let's see, where are, okay. Maybe it's later. Yeah, forgiveness is um, not about condoning what happened. It's not about forgetting what happened. It's not about excusing what happened. It can go hand in hand with strong action. right? It's more like a working with what we carry still, the reactivity, the pain. It's kind of a a healing and transformation of what I carry. You know, my own way that I'm still caught or reactive. Uh, Jack Cornfield has a line that forgiveness is giving up hope for a better past. Mm. So it's not about excusing. It's not about saying that this was okay. Mm. It also, um, forgiveness can't be rushed, right? We can't say, oh, just like metaphor, for a difficult person or for something, we we incline in that direction. In some forms, you know, some relationships, we're not ready for forgiveness. We have to hang out with the anger for some time, right? And so can't be rushed, can't decide to do it. It's more of an inner organic practice, In a way, we, we make a distinction between the act and the person. We forgive the person and we can be critical of the act. Right? Or we can say the act was not okay. We, you know, we go back to that sense of the person having, having Buddha nature. And um, we acknowledge that we all can be unskillful at times. This is, uh, this is again from Dr. King. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. One who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. So we we make a distinction between like the person and the act. And I think I was raised with that from my mom and she tells a story of once with my brother, Frederick, when he was five, of trying to use that distinction between the person and the act. <laughs> and he said, she said to him when he was five, I love you very much, but I don't like what you did. And he's talk, I think he was teasing someone or something. And my brother, uh, Frederick, responded back, it's kind of interesting at age five, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Just spank me like the other parents do. (laughs) Anyway. This is from uh, Bell Hooks, also honoring one of our dear recently departed. For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing? and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed. And we'll see tomorrow, we start with easier situations or people to forgive and we go towards the harder ones. Some of you, how many people came here especially to do metta for your most difficult person? Many of us come to retreats and you'll be disappointed because tomorrow morning I'll say, we'll do metta on a scale of 1 to 10 with your difficult person who is a 5 or a 6, not the 9 or 10, sorry. <laughs> so we st- it's like training. We start where it's easier. <clears throat> So I think I'll I'll finish with uh, another another story. Um, I had I had some stories. Um, I think about fifteen years ago, I was invited to a gathering which took place at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton was a monk, and they brought together people who were interested in the connection of inner work and social change, and there were people from all over the world and. Um, I met and spent time with um, two people. I mean, there were, I think, about 40 people there, 40 or 50 people. And I spent uh, time and got to know some, um, two people from uh, South Africa. And uh, one of them was, like, they had both been in the ANC and been been active. One of them was a minister named uh, Blessing, uh, Bongani uh, Finca, and I I spent a lot of time talking with him. He was actually a member of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with Bishop Tutu, one of about, I think there were 15 people on the commission, and and we talked a lot. I did actually, I did a, I recorded a conversation with him, which I later published, you know, on uh, his work with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and forgiveness was, you know, at the center of it and it was just uh, the amazing stories that they that they heard and I wanted to actually finish with a story that uh, Bishop Tutu tells and I'll I'll finish with this it's really um, it really is about forgiveness in this larger context and I was going to tell some other stories but I, I want to honor the time and not talk too much maybe 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 in the afternoon I'll tell some more um, so this is um I'll close with this. This is from again uh, one of our dear recently departed Bishop uh, Tutu, and there's some beautiful films on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it had it had its it had its limits, but it was probably in terms of restorative justice on that scale, it's the most advanced practice that's been done in the history of humanity. I think, even though it had you know, significant limits. Um, so this is this is a story that uh, Bishop Tutu tells about forgiveness. I think back to my time as chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. A hearing that will forever be imprinted on my memory was an investigation into the shooting of unarmed demonstrators by members of the armed armed forces. The hall in which the hearing took place, see if I can get through this, (laughs) was packed to the rafters with a crowd who were justifiably angry. The tension was palpable. Four soldiers entered and their commanding officer admitted delivering the instruction to open fire He turned to the crowd and asked "Please forgive me." The crowd the crowd then did something that none of us could have predicted. They broke into a wild applause. When the applause subsided, I turned to my fellow members of the commission and said, let us be quiet because we are in the presence of something truly holy. Forgiveness is never easy or cheap. It isn't something you can demand of others. Forgiveness is a deeply personal journey to reconnect with the whole of humanity. Around you, and therefore reconnect with yourself. It is essential because it reveals how we are inextricably bound to each other. As I have said before, there is no future without forgiveness. So, let me invite us just to sit for a few moments. So we'll be continuing now to practice metta with walking and the chanting at nine. And we're continuing to, as it were, build the metta muscle that will help us uh, tomorrow to bring the metta to where there's some challenge or difficulty with another, with oneself perhaps. Both through the metta with the difficult person, and with the forgiveness practice. So continue to, we'll continue to practice to, um, continue to have the metta, get stronger. To be be able to be with, um, you know these further, ways, these further further uh, areas that are more challenging where we still want to bring the kind heart. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.